Let go and let God. Perhaps you've heard the phrase a thousand times. Perhaps you've even said it several. It has a nice ring to it. Sounds good. At times it feels good. Let go and let God. I mean, passages like Matthew 6 where Jesus is speaking and he says, So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Passages like Matthew 6 tell us that we should let go of our anxiety. We should let go of our worry about tomorrow. And I believe this saying, let go and let God, in some ways it resonates. It resonates with our understanding that God is in control of everything. And so I can can have hands off. I can trust him in everything. He's sovereign. Yet when we survey the Bible, while it's certainly true that we ought to let go of sin, it's certainly true that we ought not be weighed down by worry and anxiety, what we'll find is that the Bible reveals that the Christian life really isn't built on this kind of doctrine. This idea of letting go and just letting God. Let go and let God isn't the biblical prescription for how we grow in godliness. It'd be helpful for us to, to not just hear that, but to receive that this morning. Let go and let God is not the biblical prescription for how we grow in godliness. And so let me ask you a question. What do you do when a particular sin stares you in the face? What do you do when the temptation is so overwhelming and you find yourself yet again, no matter how hard you try, giving in to the sin again and again and again? You can't seem to put this sin to death. You feel as though this sin is going to destroy you altogether. Nothing that you have done seems to help. Hope begins to fade. And you you remember, wait, God is strong and I am weak. And maybe what he wants is me to simply trust him more. And we may be tempted in those moments to run to let go and let God theology. But potentially, those moments are the most dangerous places to turn. Is the answer really for us to lessen our effort so that faith might increase and that God's strength might take over? Or do the biblical writers hold out something else? Not that we lessen our effort so that faith may increase, but that we diligently give effort so that faith may increase. And so that we can actively feel and sense and experience the presence and this power of God taking over. Well, as we continue our study through 2 Peter this morning, Peter is going to address this very issue, and he does so for good reason. Last week, as Bob set up the overview of 2 Peter, I would just encourage you, even as Bob said, as we're walking through this study, to be looking for those words, be looking for knowledge, be looking for remember, reminder, be looking for the word diligence. 
be looking for the word Lord. And so as, we're, as Bob set up last week, this, this letter is written to the early church. Peter is writing to the early church, these new Christians who were encountering false teachers. And these false teachers had a message that wasn't in accordance with the scriptures. And what we'll see in chapter 2 is that these false teachers were living lives that were blatantly immoral. These teachers were confident that they would enter the kingdom of God. And these Christians that Peter is writing to, they were susceptible. They were in danger of being led astray. It may have been easy for these Christians to think, okay, uh, false teachers are coming in. Maybe I will just let go of the steering wheel, let go and let God, and God can, can drive us wherever he wants us to go, and we will see what happens. But Peter urges his reader. Peter urges the listener. This means for you and I this morning, Peter, Peter is urging us that such a decision to drift and to coast is deadly. Literally, we will see what is at stake. It's deadly. And so Peter begins this letter by calling Christians to not succumb to this false teaching. Peter begins this letter by encouraging these Christians to not fall away. And so how do his words safeguard their souls? And how do these divinely inspired words safeguard our souls? Safeguard our souls today as we evaluate our own hearts and our own faith, but also as we evaluate the faith, the evidence of faith in the lives of those that are teaching. And so I'd like to pray for some clarity and I'd like to pray for life change to happen through and on the other side of this sermon. So let's pray. Our holy God, we stop not merely because pastors are supposed to stop before they pray. We stop because we are desperately dependent upon you. And if we could hear the throne room of heaven would just be declaring to us, do you understand whose ear you have? And so would you so overwhelm us with a sense of your presence? Would, these, would this be the day that the heavens are rended? That you would allow us to behold your glory? And until that day comes, we pray that as we open your scriptures, you would allow us to behold your glory. And so I pray that you would allow us to see Jesus this morning. Allow us to see Jesus in and through 2 Peter. And in seeing Jesus, would the things of this world grow strangely dim? Would we long for more of you? And so for that to happen, I'm well aware of my need. I'm well aware of our need. And so we come to you all-sufficient one. Speak now. Would you allow the sermon that is heard to be far more effective and useful, profitable than the one that is preached? And so bring us 
more and more into the conformity of Christ. Christ is our hope. We pray this in his name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them to 2 Peter chapter 1. If you are in need of a Bible, you can find a few Bibles in front of you. If you will pick up the New American Standard translation and you turn to the New Testament, page 183. And for some reason, those translations and those specific copies of the Bible have an Old Testament, page 183, and a New Testament, page 183. You will be greatly confused if you do not find the New Testament, page 183. That would be in towards the end of the book. So, how is it that Peter's words are going to safeguard the souls of the readers, and how do these words safeguard our souls this morning? Peter gives two reminders and a command that I trust not only served the original hearer, I trust and I pray will serve us this morning. Two reminders and a command that will serve as the outline, uh, but if you're really a note taker, it will be reminder, command, reminder. First reminder out of the gate that we see, number one, God richly supplies all they need. God richly supplies all they need. I want to read verses 3 and 4. That's where we find this. And I just want you to listen to the, to the foundation and the building blocks that are taking place in these two verses. To just see how everything is connected. And I want you to listen. Listen to how gracious God is. Peter is writing and out of the gate he wants to encourage these believers to stand strong against false teaching. And the thing that he runs to isn't the list of things that they have to, that they need to uh, be evaluating and marking. He runs to overwhelm them first with the love of God and the graciousness of God. Listen again, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. It is the task before me to somehow communicate glorious truths that literally keep bubbling up like this fountain that doesn't stop. And somehow I have to get all of this in, in, in one sermon point. Uh, the task before me is great. It would be easy, uh, we use this analogy, it would be easy to, to come and uh, say, look at the handful of water that I have. Here it is. And let me go back and get more and look again. And this morning, I hope to just bring you by hand to the shoreline so that you can see the unending goodness of God in and through these two verses. So what a wonderful beginning to this letter. Christians are given everything. Christians are given everything they need for life and godliness. Everything. If you're not a Christian, I just want you this morning, as we're walking through 2 Peter, to just listen to the God that you are missing out on and see the invitation this morning is not just to envy Christians who get a God who's so good, but to see the invitation that God 
and in through his great mercy, desires for you to know and to experience him. But oh, you, you will see, in order to do that, you have to be willing to lay down life as you want it and surrender to life as he deserves and requires. Christians are given everything they need for life and godliness. And so not only have Christians received faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is what he says at the end of verse 1. So not only have they received faith by the righteousness of God, and, uh, of, God of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, but they have also received all, everything they need for a godly life. Right? In many ways, this is Peter just reminding us and echoing again what Paul said in Philippians 1.6. Paul writes and he says, I am faithful that he who began a good work in you, he will complete it. How in the world can Paul make that statement? Because he knows what Peter knows. is that he has given everything for life and godliness. You read Romans chapter 8 and you just see the connection, those whom he called, he predestined, those whom he predestined, he, he justified, those whom he justified, he sanctified, those whom he sanctified, he glorified. There's not, there's, there's no gaps in the chain. He's faithful. He's given his people everything. And his gracious provision created new life. His gracious provision will sustain new life. We were to look at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything per pertaining to life and godliness. All throughout Peter's letter, what you will find is that he will use two words to sort of bolster the effect of one reality, right? So it wouldn't be helpful for us to say, okay, he's going to give us everything to life and somehow divorce life from godliness. And we'll see this. I mean, literally, you can just look down and as we're going through, by his own glory and excellence, by, uh, that was in verse three. Look at verse four. His precious and magnificent promises. Not that some of them are precious and those that are precious aren't magnificent. He's using two words to bolster the point. And so that's what he's saying here. These, these life and godliness is not meant to be broken apart. It's meant he has given you everything pertaining to eternal life and to godliness. You simply cannot have one of those while rejecting the other. If you desire eternal life, life with God, then you can't say, give me that, but I don't want godliness. And Peter is saying these things remain together. And this is, this is true. Peter's writing to these Christians and he's saying, evaluate your life. But he's also having in mind, evaluate the lives of these false teachers. These who are coming in, seeking to sweep you off your feet. Great rhetoric and yet living immoral lives. May it not be so. 2 Peter 2 makes clear that there were some in the church that were living very corrupt lives, and I'm helped by what John Piper has said at this point. He said, what Peter is doing is Peter is forbidding us to turn our faith into a fire insurance policy for escaping hell while all the while remaining unchanged. Peter at the outset says, no, 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 it's not eternal life or godliness I get to choose. 
It's he's given you everything to get to glory and to walk in holiness until you get there. He's given you everything. Eternal life and godliness stand together. Eternal life and godliness fall together. And how did these Christians get it? Look again at verse 3. His divine power has granted, his divine power granted to these Christians. Who are the Christians? Who are, who are the, the, the us there? Well, look up in, in verse 1. Those that are relying on the righteousness of Christ. And so those who are willing to turn from doing life and living in sin and saying, I can't be made right with God. The questions that I have that seem to find no answers in this world, those questions are only answered in the work of Christ on my behalf. And so I'm then, I stand in heaven after I breathe my last and the question is posed to me, this is a, not even a, a, a real scenario, but in my sanctified imagination, I stand in heaven and they stay at the gate. And of course, Peter is there and Peter's at the gate. And he says, why in the world should I let you in? And what Peter says is, I'm writing to those not who say, look at all the good that I've done. I'm writing to those who say, you shouldn't were it not for all of the good that Christ has done. And my faith and my hope, they're in him alone. Those that are relying on the righteousness of Christ, divine power has granted to those people everything needed for godly living. We can have no hope for eternal life or godliness apart from this divine power. One commentator noted that the Christian faith merely isn't a set of doctrines to be believed, though there is doctrine to be believed. It's also a power to be experienced. Divine power giving us everything we need for life and godliness. And this power, look at verse 3. This power that's granted to us everything that we need for life and godliness, how do we get that power? Well, he answers, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. This power which gives everything we need for life and godliness is experienced through this true knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. God's grace, we saw in verse 2, God's grace is multiplied through knowledge of God. Which again, let me just say, if you are not, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are not actively seeking to grow in your knowledge of God, you are undermining the divine power that's meant to flow to you through knowledge now, the other ditch is to, is to not just avoid, well, I don't need to grow, but the other ditch is to think, okay, I'm, I'm hammering through these books, and I'm reading, and I'm absorbing. Yes, but the Bible says that growth in godliness isn't just because you learn something new. Growth in godliness is when what you've learned changes who you are. And so we don't want to be just big theological kind of heads full of all, the, all kinds of truth about God and yet have arms and legs that are puny in applying what we know. God's grace is multiplied through knowledge of God, and here his power is granted through knowledge of God. And I love what he says. It's granted through this true knowledge of him, of who? Of Christ. 
the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. We oftentimes think of call, and we think if someone calls me, then I have, I can either accept that call, I can reject that call. But Peter has something a lot deeper in mind and a lot stronger in mind here. In fact, we could read what Peter is saying here in verse 3, and we could link that back to what we see Paul say in Romans 8.30. That those whom God calls, they will be glorified. And there's no gap in the chain. And so there's something a lot deeper and more effective and stronger here. Peter understands this call of Christ to be effective. It's an effective call. And this call awakens those who hear it. And this call creates faith for those who hear it. Again, I'm helped by uh, Pastor John Piper as he uh, was speaking to this kind of call idea. And he says, if you're a prisoner of war in a concentration camp and you've lost all hope and you've even thrown your morality away, but then you get news. You get news of a prisoner exchange that's being planned. And you see the guard coming down the row and he's pointing to individual prisoners and he's calling them to come follow him to freedom and family. He said, when he gets to you and he points to you, that call isn't mere knowledge. He said, that call is power. That call is, is power. The power of hope surges through your body because you know that you have been called and this calling changes everything about your life. And so when Peter says that the divine power for hope and godliness flows through knowledge of the one who calls us, he's meant to arrest the souls of the Christians as they're hearing that to be reminded of this, I was once dead. Couldn't hear any call. And yet this call took me from deaf to hear. Took me from blindness to sight. Took me from death to life. We can feel what Peter means when he says... This has been granted to you through this one who has called you. And again, he's reminding these Christians that this God who has called you will be the God who safely keeps you and will be the God who securely gets you home. He's given you everything, everything for life and godliness. If we could see the glory and the excellence of this God and we could know that our creator has approached us in our deadness and in our filth and in our sin and in our brokenness and in our inability to add anything to his team. If we could just see the glory of him approaching us and saying, you you come. I'm going to show you my glory and I'm going to give you eternal life to enjoy my glory. Friends, if we could just see that, 
I would mean power for how we live. And verse 4 says that it's by his glory and his excellence that he has granted us precious and magnificent problem, uh, promises, not problems, promises. And it's interesting at this point, we're not given a list of the promises that he has granted. And Peter is writing not because he wants the focus to be on the problem. Uh, stop. He's wanting the focus to be on the promises. All right. He has granted us, by his glory and excellence, precious and magnificent promises. Have no doubt. Not precious and magnificent problems. And we're not given a list of those promises because the focus isn't on the promises. The focus is on the result of the promises. These promises, look at what they do. Verse 4, they do two things. One thing positively, one thing negatively. They make us partakers of the divine nature. And then negatively, verse 4, we escape the corruption of this world that's bound up in desires and lust. Partaking of the divine nature isn't the Mormon idea that the creature will become a creator. That's, that, to be clear, that is anti-Christianity. In Genesis 3, that was the promise that the serpent held out to Adam and Eve. So it's not what's happening here. He's not saying you will be God one day. He's saying in God's moral character, in and through the Holy Spirit that's given to Christians, you will become more and more like your God. It refers to God reproducing his character in us, which leads to holiness. And we escape the corruption of this world because his righteousness sets us free from the power of sin that corrupts us and destroys us. And so again, why in the world should I let you in? It's not merely because, well, Jesus did something at some point, but it's Jesus did something and that something has made a difference in how I'm living every day. I'm nowhere close to where I need to be, but I look more and more like my heavenly father as I participate more into this divine nature. And so how in the world do we get in on that? How do we get... That type of, I want to partake that, and I want to escape the corruption of the world. How do I get in on that? Well, he tells us in verse 4, through these precious and magnificent promises. Trust in the magnificent and precious promises of your God. And so, if I can just speak to the Christians, if I can encourage you, Just set one to two promises of God in your mind every morning. And they can even be the same promises multiple mornings in a row. But just take one or two promises and set it before you and hold them there all day long and allow the promises of God to help you overcome your temptation to sin. And allow the promises of God to help incite you to begin to love other people and to do good to those around you. You see, sin will seek to attack by holding out promises for your happiness. Perhaps you've heard these these, uh, promises that your sin has held out to you. If you lie, you will be happier. 
If you cheat, you will be happier. If you gossip, you will be happier. If you brag, you will be happier. If you don't upset the relationship by never speaking of Jesus, you will be happier. Sin will always win that battle. Unless, as one pastor said, we have the luscious carrot of God's promises hanging clearly in front of our faces. And so friends, can I just encourage, if you are a follower of Jesus, search this book. Take the pickaxe of your time and the sweat equity and dig and find God's promises and begin to treasure them as though your life depends on them. Because, friends, they do. Feast on those promises. Keep them before your eyes so that they they lure you away from sin and towards holiness. If you're a Christian, what power, what does God lack? He lacks nothing and he has given you everything for life and godliness. And so I just want to ask this morning, what else are you requiring God to give you? more than he has already given you in Christ. And you say, whoa, 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 Justin, you don't understand. You don't know what I've been through. And can I be honest? I don't know what you've been through. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I do know what you have in Christ. I pray that we would be a church that is filled of men and women, boys and girls, Who say, who say with Peter, I have been given everything I need for life and godliness. Leads us to the command. The command, number two, is to grow in godliness through grace-fueled effort. Grow in godliness through grace-fueled effort. We see this in verses 5 through 10. Verses 5 through 10, so Peter says, okay, so now for this very reason, okay, so everything that you've been given, because of that, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And so we have the command in verse 5, no commands in verses 3 or 4. It's everything about what Christ has done. And this is such a good word for the Christian life. As we think about what it is that we are called to do for God, that should never be confused with what God has done for us. And there's an ordering, right? We will only have right standing with God once we have placed our faith and trust in what he has done. It's not, let me do a bunch of good things so that I can get something from God. The Christian faith is opposed to earning We don't earn anything in the Christian faith, but the Christian faith is not opposed to effort. We work from what we have been given. And that's what Peter's making clear. These glorious riches that have been heaped upon us in verses three and four, he now gets to verse five and he says, now because of that, apply all diligence in your faith 
by supplying. Your translation may read supplement your faith with moral excellence. This turn throws people a little bit. Right? You, you see, he, he begins and he says, God has given you all of this. And now I want you to do something. And we tend to think, wait a minute. If God is doing something, then if, he's, if God has given me everything I need for life and godliness, then why is there any need for command? God has just, and Peter's just labored in two verses, piling riches upon riches to say, God has given you all of this. And the temptation is to think, ah, so in light of that, I just let go and let God. And Peter says, no. In light of that, with all diligence, supplement, supply, work. The Bible makes clear that God's sovereign work doesn't minimize our responsibility. In fact, it encourages it. Because God gives saving faith to his people, God calls his people to himself, now we go and share the gospel. Because God gives saving faith to his people and he calls his people to himself, because God carries out his will and nothing can thwart his plans, we pray Because God has given you everything you need for life and godliness, Peter says, make every effort to supply moral excellence in your faith. Supplement your faith. And then he gives a a chain series of virtues that we are to be increasing in if you are a follower of Jesus. He said, now in light of that, grow in these things. And, and, and I don't believe that this is a step-by-step process where the first thing I do is, is this one, and then once I do this one, then I conquer the next one, and once I conquer the next one, I do the next one, and the next one, and the next one. I don't think there's a chronological ordering to this. I do think they're related. But I believe what Peter is doing is teasing out various aspects of the character of God that we are to grow in, that we are to emulate. If we have been given a new nature then we ought, that ought to be evidenced by our new life. And our new life ought to look less and less like us and more and more like the one who called us. This list begins with faith and it ends in love. Peter is laboring for these Christians and for us today to understand that true, genuine Christians do not stop pursuing growth and grace. They don't stop. They keep growing. They keep advancing. They keep applying themselves. Right? Think about it. You take vitamins. Maybe. You should. <laughs> Honest confession, I said that, and I, I don't. <laughs> but we should. We take vitamins. Why? Not to produce life. We take vitamins to supplement and maintain healthy life. And sometimes we think of effort in the Christian life as, well, I don't have, I don't, what role do I do? I don't create life. And Peter's writing to say, no, 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 apply yourself in these ways, not to produce life, but to maintain health in your life. And so I'm just, let's just read the list. And as we read the list, I just want you to allow the Spirit to do 
self-evaluation, heart surgery. Are these virtues increasing? Do they, do they mark who you are? First, he says, applying all diligence in your faith, beginning with faith. Faith is that saving belief which shows itself in a faithful commitment to Christ. Living commitment throughout the New Testament is called faith. And so the beginning is there. Is your life marked by a living commitment, a faithfulness to God? Not when it's easy, not when it's convenient, but at all times. He says, to that faith, add moral excellence. Moral excellence. Add goodness that is meant to flow from faith. Just this above reproach, this virtue of wanting to be without any hint of accusation in my character. Does that mark you? Is that a pursuit of yours? To that you add knowledge. And again, this is best understood not merely as factual, informational, but also as relational, experiential. And so are you growing in your understanding of God and his will? Are you growing in your enjoyment of God? Add that type of knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. This is very helpful in order in, in helping us to think about our knowledge. Self-control. Having restraint. Not being taken captive by impulse. Or emotion. Proverbs speaks often of the lack of self control. One in particular, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28 like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. If you are not marked by self control, you are overrun and, by, and overtaken by anything. And these false teachers, they were modeling this. Living immoral lives, no self-control, but yet adhering to what it is. I, I'm, preaching, I'm preaching truth. doesn't matter how I live. And to self-control, perseverance. Not merely sprouting up and showing a, a heightened interest in the things of God for four weeks. But it's the long haul, consistently walking and belonging and remaining over a sustained period of time. Remaining steadfast in the midst of the onslaught. And to perseverance, godliness. This idea of in everything I am and in everything I do, I have a Godward orientation. He's foremost in all things. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. It's the word Philadelphia. And the Christian twist here is that this love that was meant to mark familial brothers marks now all who belong to Christ. Is, is brotherly kindness increasing in you? I mean, especially in a day where there's opportunity for us to be at odds with one another about any sorts and matters of topics. Feel free to be at odds in your positions, but not in your kindness. And to brotherly kindness, 
He rounds out the list in love. Love. Agape. Not a love for the worthy, but a love for the unworthy. A willingness to stoop. And the reason he can call Christians to this is because Christians of all people know exactly what it's like to be loved by one who had to stoop. Brothers and sisters, there was nothing lovable about you. And because of great grace and his mercy, he stooped to love you. Love isn't an emotion. It's not a warm feeling. It's a virtue. And when we do this, we so display his glory. John 13, 35, Bob prayed it earlier. The world would know us by our love. And so Peter then sounds a warning in verse 8. He says it's possible to make a start in the Christian life and then to become indifferent and, and to be careless in applying the means of grace in our life. And then we begin to drift. And verse 8 tells us if that drift happens, then we become unfruitful and useless with the knowledge that we have. In verse 9, he even expounds that a little bit more. If we drift and these virtues are not growing in us, we are not applying ourselves to grow in godliness. It's not merely that we're just personality, we're indifferent, we're a little bit impassionate. No, Peter would say, if you are not growing in godliness, that ought to not merely just be chalked up to your personality. You may want to evaluate whether or not you really belong. Christians don't drift away from their love. He's the true north. He sets the course for all of our lives. Friends, what Peter is saying is that a lack of growing in godliness, what we would call sanctification, calls into question our being made right with God in the first place, our justification. And again, he's writing so that these Christians would evaluate themselves, but they would also be looking at these false teachers. Lacking these increasing qualities is evidence that we are blind to future glory and that we're blind to past forgiveness. How in the world can those who have been forgiven forget? How can they forget that they have been purified from sin? And so the key to Christian growth is not let go and let God, but it's to make every effort, supply all diligence. And so friends, how do you respond to that list of virtues? Do your virtues reflect a love that you have for God? Are you willing to do anything and everything to grow in these ways? This is one of the reasons that here at Covenant Life, we stress, we put an accent over community. It's because we are meant to work on these virtues. They are to be increasing, not just in you, but also in us. And we help one another have increasing virtues. And verse 10 then is the second commandment of this little section. He says, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and his choosing you. Again, calling and choosing. It's not, he's not trying to say two different things. He's essentially saying one thing. You can't have one without the other. Who is there that has ever been called that wasn't chosen? And who has been chosen that hasn't been called? And Peter calls them to be all the more eager to make their calling and their choosing 
certain. Make sure that your claim to belonging to God is really true. How in the world can I make sure that my claim that I belong to God is true? Peter says, not merely by continuing to profess it, but by showing that I live it. I'm changed. This is another gift of the church community. If you're a member of this church, you have covenanted together with other members to give oversight to this. It's not merely that we're, we're people who just profess the right things, but we've also covenanted to allow others to come near. And when we're struggling and when our profession and our life doesn't match up, brothers and sisters come alongside and they say, for your eternal joy, do not drift in these ways. Peter says that this should be a priority for you and for me. We should earnestly confirm our calling and our choosing by making every effort to advance in the qualities of Christ. We don't let go and let God. We heed the Bible's warnings about being lazy in our faith and about drifting away from our only hope. And so what do we do? We fight the good fight of faith. We take hold of the eternal life. We lay aside every weight and sin which entangles us and we run with perseverance the race that is marked before us. We press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We advance and we grow and we go forward in virtue and knowledge and self-control and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. And in this way, we reassure our hearts that we indeed do share in God's glory and his excellence. And we do that together as a family. And that brings us to the last point. The last reminder, number three, glory awaits those who walk this way. Glory awaits those who walk this way. Peter giving some very self-probing questions and Directives, and he gets to the end, and I so appreciate that he doesn't use fear at this point to sort of get a response. He actually uses fullness. He puts a fullness of joy before the reader, and he says, allow that reward to motivate you. The fullness of glory. Look at verse 11. For in this way, when all of these virtues are are, are increasing and they mark you and you are walking in light of verses three and four, when all of that is happening, then for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Peter insists that people cannot enter without living a godly life. But he also is making sure this isn't a salvation by works. If you work enough, then you will be able to get into eternal kingdom with God. No, he's not saying that. He's saying if you trust in the work of Jesus that is enough, then you have salvation. Not salvation by works, but a salvation with works. You see, Peter heard Jesus talk about this. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says to those that were around him, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And Peter now is writing literally his last words to these young Christians, and he's saying, there are false teachers. Not everyone who shows up and says, thus says the Lord, has that authority. And one of the ways we tell is by looking at their lives. 
and if their lives are grossly inconsistent, if their message is woefully wrong, then we do not submit. Peter is confirming here by reminding these Christians that subjects of the king will show that they belong to the kingdom by their obedience. The difficult road to glory ends in a rich rich reception and a welcome. And the reward is life with Jesus. Friends, the reward for... Perhaps you're just listening to this sermon. You're saying, this sounds so hard. And Peter says, it is so hard. And yet what awaits you at the end is so much more glorious than any hardship that you will ever endure. You get the God who created you, the one that you were created for. You get him for all of eternity in unending measure. You will not grow bored in heaven. You will not mine out God's goodness throughout all of eternity. These young Christians needed to assess themselves as they're being exposed to these doctrines Peter says, the rewards of grace in eternity will correspond to the work of grace in time. The rewards of grace of eternity will correspond to the works of grace in time. And so the promise of God is that if we pursue virtues in this life, having received from him forgiveness of sin, partakers of the divine nature, escaping corruption, then we can rest assured of our eternal home and we will enjoy forever and ever and ever with him. We're meant to live by looking back to the cross and looking forward. Looking forward to this day. Friends, soon enough, your back pain and your cancer and your depression and your shame and your guilt and your struggle to do as Jesus would have you to do, soon enough, it will be over. Soon enough, those struggles will come to an end. And beloved, you will rest on the shores of the river. You will eat the honey and drink the milk of the new heavens. You will sing the songs of the angels. You will have a task, but it won't be the task that you hate waking up every day to do. No, it will be the best vocation that you've... It will be better than any vacation you've ever taken here on this corrupted earth. You will eat the choicest foods and drink the richest wines. And the most important part... What makes heaven glorious is that you will get your God. You will get your God. And in that moment, for all of eternity, you will not regret one thing that you ever gave up to gain him. Nineteen fifty-two, Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off the Catalina Islands, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. 
She'd already been the first woman to uh, swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly that day. She could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her. Still yet, she swam for 15 hours. She finally began to beg for them to take her out of the water. Her mother in a boat alongside her told her, no, 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 you're so close. Keep swimming. And yet she couldn't make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered that she was less than half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, they asked young Chadwick about her experience. She said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Consider her words, brothers and sisters. If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. For believers, that sure is Christ and being with him in the place that he promised to prepare for us where we will live with him forever. If we can see through the fog, I am confident that if he gives us sight, we will make it. I know that there are some of you that are not Christians who've been listening to this sermon And you thought this sermon focuses a lot on Christians, and rightly so, because this is a letter that was written to Christians. And yet this letter is ripe with opportunities for those that are not Christians to both learn about the good God of the Christian faith and to know him. To know him. And so I just want to ask, where will you turn to supply all that you need for this life? And can you, can you turn to just one place or do you have to keep turning to many? What awaits you after your last breath? How will you ever grow in godliness if you are at war with the God who created you? You see, we were all made in the image of God. We were made to know his glory, to know him and to enjoy him and to live under his authority. And yet we have sinned. We do what we want to do. We can't stop doing what we want to do. And that sin separates us from God because it's an offense to God. He's a holy God. And so God cannot leave our evils unaddressed. And it's his goodness that separates us from him. And therein poses the problem. The very God we were created for, we can't get to because of our sin. And this sin has affected everyone. And it would have been good and right for God to let us go on our way and to reap what we had sown. And yet in marvelous grace, he entered in. He came to us. He came in the person of Jesus, the Christ, to do what we could not do, to live a life that was pleasing to him and to bear what we were deserving of, the penalty for sin. That's why Christ came. In his perfect life, he deserved no penalty, and yet he dies as our substitute, bearing the penalty that we, reserved, uh, that we deserved. Why? So that we might get his reward. And God raised Christ from the dead to show that the penalty of the Father had been completely exhausted on the Son for all who would turn from their sin and trust in him. If you're not a Christian, I just want you to know that you can know this God and you know this God by believing in that truth. And that truth, believing in that truth will cost you everything. It may even cost you your life, but what you stand to gain in glory is far greater than anything that you would lose. And if you have a question about that, it would be 
the joy of any person in here to talk to you about it. You can be loved and forgiven and accepted by the God who has been this lavish in all of his grace, who provides for his people and who promises to get his people to glory. Friends, don't, don't continue walking away from this God who's inviting you to know him. Come to him. Peter overwhelms us with the reality that Christ is our provider. He provided all that we need in salvation and godliness. He provides all we need in growth in the Christian life. And he will one day provide a warm reception into glory. That's good news. Let's pray. God, would you allow us to respond to your goodness and grace? And so I pray that you would use the word that has gone forth to accomplish its purposes in our lives. Help our church grow to be more like Jesus. And so in this moment of silence, would you by your spirit prompt us to know how we ought to obey? And would we, would we be quick, even this week, to share with others what obedience looks like in the days ahead? Speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening.